Well, Garen mentioned um, a few weeks ago, I can't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago, the sermon series going through the names of God is so important because as people, our tendency is to define God on our terms. If life is going great, maybe we have to, would determine that, boy, God is good to us and, and his character is is one of a generous and caring God, but when times are difficult, maybe it's hard to understand that we would define God according to our difficulty. We would define God according to, to our life experiences. And that's a dangerous way to, to come to God's word, to understand who God is. Rather than defining God, we want to look to his word and look at how God is a self-revealing God. He doesn't hide himself from us. Rather, he gives us um, this rich sense of his character. He gives us great big theological ideas, and he gives us a variety of names to understand something about what God is like. So uh, that's why this is so important. Uh, as we look um, through different places in Scripture, many of these names are coming from, from Genesis, from Exodus, the, the very beginning of our Scripture. Uh, throughout Exodus, God is making himself known to Israel as they ha have left Egypt and slavery behind. God reveals himself to a people who need many reminders. If you look kind of in the, the heart, the middle of Exodus, God's people, they're reminded of his goodness and then they forget. And so God reminds them and they forget. God reminds them and they forget. They need many reminders. So we have the opportunity to look at scripture, observe God, making himself known. And then in prayer, we ask God to reveal himself to us that we make this leap from Exodus, from thousands of years ago, in a, a place and a culture that sometimes it's hard for us to understand, we make this great leap to today and we evaluate, right? God, give us a chance to understand how you've revealed yourself. So we ask the Lord to demonstrate his power in our lives. We ask him to give us the chance to fix our gaze upon him and see his care and his provision for us. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning in Exodus chapter 17. Um, there's a thing that you can look at. I'll try to remember to click through those this morning. Um, in Exodus chapter 17, the name for God that we want to understand this morning is Yahweh Nisi. The meaning of Yahweh Nisi is I am is my banner. That's the, the name of God for this morning. And when you think of a banner, you can think of a, a flag, you can think of a signal, a pennant, the, the indication of a person. Of, of, uh, here's one that I, we all would recognize, a banner that is recognizable to us, the stars and stripes. Um, this is a, a photo from World War II when uh, the United States Marines, they took uh, island of Iwo Jima and they come to the top of the mountain. They've won the battle for just long enough to plant the stars and the stripes at the top of the mountain. And at the very least, it indicates to other soldiers, this is the ground that, that we have taken. You can look up to the mountaintop and see that's where uh, our comrades are at. Another one that popped into my mind, maybe is in some ways the opposite of this, is the, the skull and crossbones. I think when I was a, a middle school boy, this is something I drew on the back of notebooks, and I didn't have any understanding for what it meant, but this was the, the flag, the pennant, the, the banner that pirates would put on the mast of a ship. And instead of saying, you know, we're a, a nation or we have certain rules, we operate according to certain things, it, it, it indicated be afraid. 
I'm like, we will not negotiate with you. We are going to come. We'll kill you. And maybe it actually functioned as an opportunity for payment. That if you saw a pirate ship flagging or, or uh, flying, I think it was called the Jolly Roger, that skull and crossbones, it was an opportunity to make a payment. Maybe you protect your life by bribing the pirates and, and paying them off to send them away. However we think about it, these are just examples of a, a flag, a banner. The banner that we have this morning is the banner not of a nation, not uh, a banner that would incite fear, but a banner that says, this is your God. I am, Yahweh is our banner. So we'll be looking at this language of, of banner this morning. In the text of scripture that we'll read, we'll see that the people of Israel, they need a heart understanding that Moses was their leader. He was appointed by God to guide them, and he would be the one who would send them into the promised land. But they also needed to see that the Lord was the one who was responsible for providing victory. It wasn't the, the power of the sword. It wasn't the power of Moses as a leader, but it was rather the power of God. So the people of Israel, they moved from slavery in Egypt towards the promised land. And as they went, they experienced several problems before they get to uh, chapter 17. And the people of Israel, uh, they wander off into the desert. At this point, there's this understanding that it might have been a short trip. They don't know yet about their own idolatry that will unfold. And then the, the 40 years in the desert but they already run into some problems. They go out into the desert and they don't know what to eat. They have the problem of food and God provides. They don't know what they will drink and God provides water and, and they can drink. They don't know how they will kind of govern themselves. And there's instruction, here's how to, to govern your nation. And then the first outside attack, the first outside problem is what we'll find in chapter 17, where they're uncertain freedom, um, the uncertain path will be made known to them by the Lord. Now, they're going to come into a, a time of battle, and they'll interact with uh, an enemy tribe. And it's hard for us sometimes to understand, even before we get to the text, I want us to be thinking this way. I want us to be reading into the text. How does this, um, the way Garen has described it, we read it with the eyes of history and culture, but we need to also understand and read it through 21st century eyes. So today, we don't expect God to provide manna for us to eat. We don't expect God to provide miraculous water for us to drink. We don't need a, a supernatural victory on the battlefield on Monday morning. But I do believe that it's wise for us to look at God's word and to imagine how will the Lord respond to the challenges of all of his people, including us today. Um, in Exodus 17, verse 7, before we get to the text of this morning, this is the kind of the context of the story. In Exodus 17, 7, the people say, they ask, is the Lord with us or not? I think this is a key question that Christians in every generation have to answer, that we have to answer as individuals. Is the Lord going to be with you or not? That's the context of what happens in our text for this morning. And the answer that Moses provides for his people is this. The Lord, our God, with the name I am, he is for us. He is our power. He is our provision. He is the one who guides us to ultimate victory. The victory is in his hands, not ours. We stand under the banner that declares I am is for us. So we're going to walk through the text of Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. 
Then we'll look at some application from the passage. So turn your scripture with me, Exodus 17, starting in verse 8, and I'll read 8 through 16. And then we'll come back and go through it verse by verse. Here's what the whole story says. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcome the, overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because the hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Let's go back and look at the beginning of this text, 17 verses 8 and 9. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men and go out to fight the Amalekites tomorrow. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt. At this point, it's before the Ten Commandments and the idolatry of the people. They understand that this might be a short trip in the desert, not a trip that wipes out a generation of idol worshipers. Um, they need food, they need water, and the Lord has provided miraculously for that. And then in Exodus 17, we have this first battle. Now, the people of Amalek were a nomadic tribe. Um, they likely came to this place called Rephidim looking for water. The water that we know was supposed to be there wasn't there, and God had to provide for it miraculously. Um, perhaps in this fight for resources, a battle is about to unfold. So Moses gathers the leaders together to prepare for battle the next morning. Joshua is instructed to lead the battle while Moses will take Aaron and her up on the hilltop. Now it's difficult, maybe impossible today to find exactly where this happened, but we can have some sense of this. I remember growing up in, in church, uh, you kind of had to imagine how some of these battles, how some of the, the geography might have uh, looked or how it might have felt. At the very least, I wanted to show you, not just for your imagination, some photos. Um, here's a, a thought about where this might have taken place. Uh, the, the thought that a rock like this one up to the left could have been where the water had flowed out to provide water for the Israelites. That there were, uh, You can see how... Um, it, maybe in Kansas, maybe in the Flint Hills, it's hard to imagine getting a rock so big that Moses can sit on it. But you look at this and look, well, there's rocks that you can sit on just about every place. Um, the role of water and a battle, a fight over water, doesn't always make sense to us. But as you can see, kind of this arid desert landscape, if you don't win the battle and you don't have access to water, you will die. So you can see how the battle would unfold. Uh, you can also see in the photo just the sense of, of that hilltop geography. Here's another uh, photo from a different spot looking down. Here's that great big rock. And down uh, above that rock, you can see looking down, I think this is actually taken from a drone, you can see the valley down below. In this type of setting, if this is where it took place or if it's just one that 
kind of fits, checks all of the boxes and is similar. You can see how Moses is standing up on the hilltop. It would be easy for the army to, uh, below to look up and see Moses and to see the staff of God in his hands. So that's kind of some geography, what it might look like. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Here's what happens in verse 10 and verse 11. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. Whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. The staff in the hands of Moses is the staff that he used at the Nile. It's the staff that he used to cause water to flow out of the rock to provide for that survival in the desert. The staff is not magical. The staff doesn't have power in the, the object. But that staff and, and what Moses represents as he holds it up is the power of God to provide miraculously on their behalf. They're not looking to Moses for power. They're not looking to the staff for power, but they're looking for what they represent. When the Israelite soldiers see the staff held high, they trust in the power of God. We can assume that Moses is in fervent prayer, that he's holding that staff up and he's speaking words of intercessory prayer over the army down below. When Moses' strength begins to fail, the battle begins to, to turn towards the Amalekites. Uh, let's read verses 12 and verse 13, kind of following the story. Here's what it says in verse 12 and verse 13. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, but his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So with the support of Aaron and Hur, Moses is able to stand. The battle ends in the favor of Israel. And then verses 14 and 16, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh, I, I am, is my banner. And he said, because of the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. As a way of marking the victory, marking God's faithfulness, Moses builds a, an altar, a place where they could remember this is the place where Yahweh Nisi, I am, is my banner, is the one who provided the victory. That's the story, that's the text. Well, how does that impact us? How does that change our lives. I want to just list three truths that I believe we can hold on to even now, generation after generation, thousands and thousands of years later. What's true in this text that's also true in our lives? The first truth that I would turn us to understand is that the same God who won the victory then is our banner now. Sometimes we come to the text of Scripture the God of the Old Testament seems to be one kind of God, and then Jesus is a, a different kind of God. And I just, I feel it's like a, a responsibility in, in ministry as a, a pastor to college students to, to speak before you. God is the same in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the same God that provided power and guidance and strength to Moses and the Israelites, who is the same God uh, a thousand years later, who's the same God that we serve today, and he's the same God who will uh, interact and, and care and provide for our children and our children's children. Um, the same God who won the victory then is our banner now. Yahweh Nisi, uh, 
Yahweh, I am, who is your banner. It was true for Moses, and it was true for you as well. Part of being human means that we regularly, again and again in life, come under attack. Um, our attackers might not be violent nomads who would you know, do battle on the, the plain, the desert plain. That highly likely that none of us are going to, to do battle with nomads. Maybe one of you, I, I don't know. It's highly likely that our battle will not take that form. But I would remind us, our battle will be persistent. It's part of the human condition. Uh, we will come under attack. Our attackers, instead of being violent nomads, might come at us under the banner of cancer, recession, miscarriage, depression, a thousand other labels, but they will come to attack. And the same God who was on the move guiding the Israelites then is on the move now. He desires that just like Joshua and the army in the valley look up and see that the God who provides, uh, he will care, he will strengthen us. He desires that we would look to him for victory. He desires that we would turn to him for our strength. He desires that we would be lifted up by prayer and that we would acknowledge that I am is our banner. I don't believe that he will bring us victory in every single battle, but I do believe that he desires that we would look to him every single time. The same God who won the victory then is our banner now. Second truth from God's word from Exodus 17 that I think is important for us to see this morning is that the Lord is not shaken by our doubt. Um, <laughs> the Lord is not shaken by our doubt. When you look back at Exodus, um, the Israelites seem to doubt God again and again and again. Remembering what I just uh, read a few moments ago uh, from Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, the, the way the story kind of unfolds right before this story, in Exodus 16:3, the complaint of the people of Israel is this. They ask, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt? Here's a translation of that for, for us. We wish that God would have killed us in Egypt via the uh, oppressive Egyptian slave master. Um, I, I would prefer to have been beaten to death as a slave than to wander in the desert where God is providing every food I need to eat, all the water I need to drink. I uh, have wrestled with the, the way the Israelite people kind of present themselves in the story in Exodus for years. You remember I read from the end of chapter 7, um, the place where the water is miraculously flowing out uh, in the first part of chapter 7, there are two names that are given to that, Masa and Meribah, and they mean testing and quarreling. This is the, the place names for this location. So it's like, welcome to fighting and complaining to sister cities. Can you imagine being like on the tourism board for the city called Fight, the city called Quarrel? This is where the Israelites, how they live it out. Um, we wish that we had died in Egypt. They're fighting and quarreling so much that Moses says, this is the name that we'll give to this place. And then that verse that I read from 17.7, is the Lord with us or not? 
They're always doubting. They're always complaining. And so growing up, I heard those stories from Exodus in church. And my understanding of the Israelite people is that they were the weakest, most bitter, grumbling, disagreeable people in all of Scripture. That's how I thought about them. Now, here's another thing that I thought about Exodus. I thought Moses looked like this. This is Charlton Heston from the old movie, The Ten Commandments. I don't know when I saw that movie. Um, I don't know when it came out, long before I was on the scene, but I, for some reason it must have been like on repeat on TV. And so in my mind, the Israelites were these weak, complaining, terrible people. I remember hearing a sermon, I don't know how old, maybe I've been like 12 years old. I remember hearing a sermon where a pastor said that the Israelites were leading the Back to Egypt committee, that they were going like, to gather themselves up and say, we want to go back and die there rather than die here. That's why I thought about it as a kid. As an adult, as I am rereading Exodus, here's what I believe to be true. I have a, a ton more sympathy for Israel because I find myself asking again and again and again, wouldn't my life have been better if God would have done things differently last year, five years ago, 10 years ago? Wouldn't things be better now if God had changed things then? Like I'm leading in my own life the back to the way things were committee. And then I'm asking again and again, God, are you really for me or not? I sound like Israel. I forget the provision of God in my life. I forget the ways that he has cared for me, that he's allowed me to win the battle. He has taken care of me again and again and again. And I ask that question, Lord, are you with us or not? The good news is that as often as we might doubt God seems willing to turn our eyes to the truth that he is the banner that we should fix our eyes upon. He doesn't say, quit asking. He doesn't say, I'm sick of you. He simply says, fix your eyes on me. I am is your banner. Remember who I am in your life. When we forget, he shows us that his power is working on our behalf. Third truth that I see in the text I wanted to share with you is that I believe the text shows us that we need leaders who draw their strength from the Lord and are supported on the right and on the left. It's kind of a unique time to, to preach on a Sunday morning when Garen is here, because Garen usually is not here and takes off. Just want to assure you before I go another step with this point, Garen asked me this morning, I'm curious, like I'm interested to hear what you will preach this morning. I don't check these sermons with Garen, and he certainly doesn't like uh, plant a seed. You know what you need to talk about? You need to talk about leadership in our church. My understanding is the Lord leads through a text for me to come to a truth that I want to share with you this morning. I believe that we need leaders who draw their strength from the Lord and are supported on the right and on the left. The power for victory in the valley did not come from Moses. Moses' strength simply runs out. In a 12-hour period of time, he stands and he prays, and he's a symbol, a representative of a God who is eternal, a God who is all-powerful, but he is weak, and he runs out of strength. The power of victory didn't come from the staff that he held in his hands. The power for victory came from a holy and loving God. Moses was not like Charlton Heston. He's not heroic in some ways. Moses was a simple shepherd, 
living in exile because he'd murdered a man. He had zero ability to negotiate with Pharaoh. If you remember the story, he says, like, I'm a man, essentially, I'm a man who stutters, who can't speak, and Moses is the leader of a global world power, and you're asking me to negotiate you know, a prisoner release, and I can't do it. But the measure of, of success is not found in who Moses was. The measure of success is found for Moses in how he leans upon the power of the Lord, how God works through him. Church, our pastor, our church staff, and our deacons cannot lead this church in human skill, in human effort, or in human insight. They will regularly make mistakes, and they will let you down. But that's not the measure of their success. The measure of the success of leaders within a church are how faithful they will be to rely on the Lord. Will they run down into the valley and take up a sword, or will they stay on the hilltop, supported on their right and on their left, and represent the power of God as the one who wins the battle? As you do battle down in the valley with cancer or a job loss or depression or the thousand other enemies that you are, are dealing with, I want you to be willing to look to church leaders and see that they utterly dependent upon the Lord and model for you that you don't need to be strong enough or wise enough or whatever enough because you're not and they are not. It will be that looking to them as models, as ones who are reliant on the Lord so that you would rely on the Lord's power, the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's guidance in your life. For some of you in our church, it will be a serious task for you to be willing to come alongside church leaders and simply stand and hold them up on their right and on their left. I would, would venture a guess that every single one of you can find some environment of life where you are a leader and you will also need to draw strength from the Lord. I think almost all of you have opportunity to lead. You'll have opportunity to lead your family. You have opportunity to lead in your workplace. You have opportunity to lead in your school. Almost all of you have some form of leadership. Don't believe that you have to be a leader who's perfectly wise or strong or capable to deal with whatever comes at you. Rather, I would counsel you that God, God's word tells us your leadership would be one who rests in the Lord, who understands that the banner over you is not you be good enough or strong enough or wise enough, but the banner over you is a good and loving and holy God. I am is your banner. In closing, I just want to remind you that you don't need a flawless pastor to impact our community. That's a good thing because there's no such thing as a flawless pastor. Jesus is the one flawless spiritual leader. You don't need a flawless pastor for this church to have an impact. You don't need to be a flawless parent to lead your family. You don't need to be sinless to impact your workplace or your school. We don't need to be able to stand up through every battle on our own. More than anything else, we fix our eyes 
on the one who will see us through. I am is our banner, and he is for us. I'm going to pray for us, and he'll lead us into our time of singing. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you are the one who is the banner over us, that you are the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are a God of strength and wisdom, of victory, and we can turn our eyes upon you. Father, I thank you that as we lead at home, at work, at school, that our job is not to, to always win the battle, but our job is to keep our eyes fixed on you and trust in your wisdom, trust in your sovereignty, trust in your power to guide us in however we ought to live in these places of, of life. Father, I thank you that in being the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that you are a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thank you that you sent your Son to be the, the ultimate example of one that we look to for not just power and wisdom and strength, but we look to you for salvation, that we find our ultimate rescue for all of life's battles in relationship with Jesus. Father, I thank you for how you have knit together these stories, your identity from the Old Testament to the New. Father, I pray that we would... Take to heart these lessons from Scripture and understand how you desire to radically change our lives, to change our church, to change our families, to change uh, all of the community that we live in. Thank you for how you've guided us in this way. Amen. We turn now to communion and our time of remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We always want to take the time of communion seriously. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Meaning that the, the Lord's table, table is not taken lightly. Uh, we are warned not to come to the time of communion in a way that is, is careless or um, something that is minor. We set it aside as something that's an important part of the life of our church. So we celebrate it both with a sense of its weight, uh, a sense of the cost that Jesus had to pay for our sin. And so we want to take a few moments and pray, examine our own hearts, and then turn to the, the sense of celebration that, that this is what Jesus did on our behalf. So let's take a few moments and pray and evaluate our hearts, confess sin, and, and prepare for communion. Jesus, we thank you for your atoning sacrifice, for your purchase of our freedom through your death on a cross. And Father, we ask that you would remind us of the grace that covers our sin as we take communion this morning. Amen. I want to invite our, our servers to come to the, the table that we have prepared. The way we do communion at 12th Avenue is that anyone who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord is welcome to, to join us. If you're visiting this morning, if you 
Um, you're not a member of this community. We just want you to know that you are invited to the table as long as you know Jesus is your Savior. We want you to, to take time to reflect before coming up. There's no reason to, to rush to the table. If you want to continue to pray or evaluate your heart, that would be great. Uh, when you come to the table, we want you to come as a family or as a small group, with friends, as an individual, whatever makes sense for you. Um, the servers will say a few words as you come to each table. They will invite you to take um, the bread and the, the juice that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And then we'll take and we'll eat at the tables. Um, even if there's a line behind you, don't uh, feel like you need to hurry. There are four uh, tables up front, two in the back. If you need uh, a gluten-free option, I think the Hollenbecks have that one over here to your right. I'm going to read from Luke 22, and then we will come to the table. Here's what it says in Luke 22, 13 through 20. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, poured out as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. As you're ready, come to the, the table and we'll take communion. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes again, my prayer for you is that our eyes would be fixed on Yahweh Nisi, I am, who is our banner, that he would be the one who provides the victory. That's my prayer for you. Go this morning, being sent, you're loved, and thank you for being a part of our community.